With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Athletic. All right, Reds, Tony Evans here with Walk On, your Liverpool podcast from The Athletic. Well, the Reds were held to Brighton and denied Jürgen Klopp three points on his eighth anniversary. So coming up, we're going to talk about all things Klopp, the highs, the lows, the emotional roller coaster, as we analyse the past, present and future with James Pearce and Simon Hughes. And as ever, let's start with those three words. Come on, Simon, three words. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I've forgotten again. Go on, James, hurry up. Every single week. That's There's my three words, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going with more VAR shambles. New number six. And I'm going to go for refs are rubbish. Over on the Walk On Podcast Facebook group, they're saying, Steve Campbell says, doubt is to believers, Stu Siegel, Klopp is king, Mohamed Nagy, a fun roller coaster, and Peter Keeley, simply the best. To join our community of listeners on Facebook, just search Walk On Podcast and join the group. Well, Sunday was Jürgen's eighth anniversary. You know, we arrived in Liverpool. We all had great expectations, but I don't think any of us imagined he'd do what he did. James, does he deserve a statue? I'd put one up for him now. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? I remember interviewing Steven Gerrard actually just after Liverpool had won the title uh, in 2020, and he that was the standout line from his that interview was him saying the owners need to need to get building that statue uh, of Klopp, sharpish, and um, and I remember putting it to Klopp, and he was like, no, 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 I don't. He said, don't they don't they only do statues of people after they've gone? He said, you know, I'm I'm very much still here, and I don't I don't need a statue. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, he's in that, you know, he, he, that is the kind of accolade deserving of what he's achieved. Cause I think he is the most transformative figure in the club's history since Bill Shankly, because of, I think when you weigh it up in terms of where the club was at when he came in and what he's done, because obviously for so long, there was that process of just maintaining success from Shankly to to Paisley to to Fagan to Dogleach and yeah, where Liverpool were at as a club eight years ago compared to now is just the difference between light and day. Simon, you know, bronze is the the metal at the eighth anniversary, but you know, when he arrived, we would have been happy with third place, wouldn't we? But instead, gold first place. How quickly did the mentality change? Well, I think amongst the fan base, the mentality changed. Almost instantly, really. You know, the fact that Liverpool suddenly had this this manager who'd already done what Liverpool were trying to do at another club and done it with a 
a lot of charisma, a clear identity. I mean, people talk about identity all the time now, but it was the sort of, the way they'd done it in the type of football was the sort of thing that people certainly could get on side with very quickly. James was there as well, but I, I remember the, the first press conference that he did in, um, well, the Kenny Dalglish stand, as, it, as it's called now. And I don't know, as soon as he walked in, I just thought he just had this presence about him. For me, it it just seemed to change then straight away. It just felt like Liverpool had the leader that, that, that they needed, really. I think it took, I mean, it took him longer to, to, to make meaningful change, you know, in terms of the team genuinely becoming something that he wanted it to be. Um, you know, off the field, the, the level of structure that needed to be there to to sustain some sort of challenge to Manchester City. But overnight, it felt just like Liverpool have got Klopp now, they're going to be serious. Some of the early results, I think, were proof of that, really. I mean, they went to Manchester City and won 4-1, was it? Obviously, went to Chelsea early on, won, won convincingly as well. When I think back to 2015, uh, it's all part of the same package for me. You know, when you think to 2019, it feels like a very short space of time because so even though it's actually four years, you know, a lot happened and it, a lot was packed into that period between his appointment and becoming the, the European champions again. And then within five years, of course, in fact, less, you know, less than five years becoming the Premier League champions. James, it wasn't all roses in the, you know, those early days. I mean, let's face it, in the second half of 2017, I mean, people were beginning to wonder, weren't they? And uh, I mean, there were even players who were saying, oh, there's no plan B. You know, where's this going? Yeah, yeah. I, I think back to that chastening defeat Liverpool had to Tottenham at Wembley, which um, I think was that in like the October, November, I think, of that season. Yeah, yeah. That was probably the lowest ebb of that season in terms of like just laying bare what needed to happen because, yes, that there'd been some important changes overseen before that. You know, obviously Sadio Mane was was absolutely crucial in in sixteen seventeen in terms of giving Liverpool the impetus to secure a top four finish in Klopp's first full season in charge. But of course, that failure to to strengthen the back line was glaring when you think back to that day, and you, know, you had to feel sorry for Day and Lovren hauled off before half time, you know, because he was having such a horrendous time of it. You know, I think sometimes you when we see things like through rose tinted glasses and think, oh everything did just change overnight. But you think Liverpool fans were pretty browbeaten when Klopp came in. You think back to one of those, you know, those early home games against Palace when Klopp obviously famously said, I felt alone at the prospect of fans just getting off with 10 minutes to go because that had almost become the mindset of, well, we'll, we'll lose this. And so I think that was like one of the biggest things that he had to change was just not only in the dressing room, but amongst fans as well. Just the fact, you know, there was that quote from him, wasn't it, where he think he said, we decide when it's over. And, you know, that was why I think the Dortmund game was huge in terms of just changing everyone's perceptions on that front. It wasn't just smooth, was it? There were, there were some real bumps in the road in 17-18, which, which then made what happened in terms of the run to Kiev all the more remarkable, really. I mean, for me, that was, you know, we got beat in the final, Simon. It was one of my favourite European Cup slash Champions League runs. I mean, it was just fantastic because it was completely unexpected. It seemed to come out of nowhere. You know, you might say that was one of the lows getting beaten in uh, Kiev. But after that, you thought anything's possible. Yeah, strangely, I I felt more down after the Europa League final in 2016 than Kiev. I just felt with Kiev, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. Best player gets injured. 
very quickly into the game. You know, your goalkeeper, <laughs> still nobody really knows what he was doing. And Gareth Bale walks onto the pitch and scores an overhead kick with his shin with the first kick of the game. On that basis, you're not going to win the game, are you? So I was able to rationalise and thought, well, you know what? Not much really went in Liverpool's favour that day. And, you know, they were, com- they were they were relatively competitive with Real Madrid, I would say, for, for, for parts of that game. It wasn't, uh, Real Madrid were the better team, obviously, but I didn't come away from it thinking, well, that's it. You know, th- there's nothing nothing left to give. I mean, I, I thought it was one of the good, sort of the better Liverpool PR slash strategy moves to, to make a sign in the following day, you know, in, in Fabinho, a player who they clearly needed, you know, that, that that part of the pitch. And I think that helped a lot of people in the aftermath of it as well. So, well, there's something to look forward to straight away next season. So I thought that was very clever, that, to, the way they did that. James does have a point, I suppose, that very early on, there the were sort of games where it felt like Klopp was still sort of trying to fight with the crowd at Anfield a little bit in terms of making sure that they were all on board with him. But he did turn it around pretty quickly. And as you said, that Dortmund game, I've said it before on this podcast, but I don't think Barcelona happens without Dortmund really, and that will remain one of the you know the great great games. I, I that Europa League one, I would argue, was even more unexpected than the Champions League one, really, because you know they were struggling to be. Was it Bordeaux? I remember they struggled at Bordeaux, didn't they? One of the early group games. Um, who else was in that? God, this is a good testimony. So it was Bordeaux, Ruben Kazan, and in the Europa League group stage that season. You remember, James? You were at the games. <laughs> they all mould into one. They do, yeah. I'll have to go back and think. It's probably somebody really obvious. But but that that that, that season was a great, you know, I, I look back at that season, apart from the final, as a as a really good season. But the way they lost that final was so deflating. And I remember speaking to you after that game, Tony, and we were talking about Klopp and his, his reaction in that game to when things turned the other way wasn't great. You know, he, he sort of started waving his, go on, James, you've got the answer. Sion. Sion. There you go. Could not remember that. Very forgettable. Nil-nil away on a frozen pitch. Do you remember that one over there? Yeah, I didn't go to that one, no. But I remember I remember discussing that after the final and his sort of reaction to the going behind to Seville and the, the shock of the way it happened was just a sort of wave at the crowd. Maybe that was because he knew he didn't really have anything on the bench, I think, that day. I, I don't know, but... It's all, I had the right on. Yeah, yeah, I remember you did. And, uh, you know, quite quite rightly as well, because it was a really sort of shambolic second-half performance, I I thought. And given how they performed to get there, it was it was quite out, out of keeping. But Seville, to be fair, played very very well and, and out, you know, had more experience of those sorts of ties in this team. And there was a concern, as you said, to sort of losing finals. They lost the League Cup final. That was another disappointment. You know, they lose Kiev and you're starting to think, I can understand why the conversation starts. You know, Klopp had lost quite a lot of big games at that point hadn't he but yeah it sort of feels like in two parts to me sort of 2015 to 18 and then 18 to, to 20 sort of two quite distinctive periods really in the in the Klopp era Hello there Io here listen to me on the Athletic Football Podcast where we go deep on the biggest stories in the game providing insight and analysis from the very best journalists in the business. You won't get this anywhere else. Available now on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. Just search The Athletic Football Podcast now. (laughs) 
Imagine the scenario. A much-loved and inspirational leader has announced his intention to take a career break and you need to find someone just as tactically astute and charismatic, but perhaps without the glasses and the teeth. Well, when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They've even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash walk. That's L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N dot com slash walk. W-L-K to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Have your say and get involved by emailing walk-on at theathletic.com. In a way, he's been unfortunate because he's come up against Manchester City, James. You know, the 115 churches loom and, you know, but they have changed the nature of the Premier League with the money from Abu Dhabi. And, you know, there's no way we could compete in those terms. But Klopp made this seem competitive. I mean, you know, losing out to City after, you know, going on a record points run is, is remarkable. And then, of course winning the league. Well, I think what's really interesting is the way the dynamics inside the club changed, you know, with um, his relationships in that time with the people who we worked with. I mean, what do you think was the, the most important, you know, change there? Well, I think what undoubtedly what enabled Liverpool to go to the next level was the, the business that they oversaw. Because as you said, it was never going to be a case of trying to put Liverpool back at the top. You didn't have riches, anything on the same level as Man City. So you had to be clever. And Liverpool were incredibly clever with their recruitment. And, you know, when you look back now, the context of that Coutinho deal looks ever more incredible when you think to sell him for £142 million. And the fact that, you know, that money paid for Van Dijk and it paid for Alisson, probably the two most transformative signings in the Premier League era, certainly for Liverpool. So that that was big, and, you know, and you had you know, obviously Trent Alexander-Arnold, development of someone like him. You know, and I think the dynamic there between Klopp and Michael Edwards worked really well. And yeah, Liverpool were an absolute machine. I mean, it's crazy to think, how on earth do you get 97 points and not win the league? And then to put that disappointment to one side and go and win the Champions League. They, they were just magnificent days to be a Liverpool fan. You know, you go and... Liverpool then go and, you know, they go and win the Super Cup. They go and win the Club World Cup for the first time ever. They absolutely blew everyone away, didn't they, in 1920? I mean, it's, when you look, it's funny because someone said to me recently, actually, they said, oh, you know, at what point that season did you think that Liverpool had won it? Well, I thought, well, it was probably actually into the new year for me, but which was ridiculous when you look at the points gap. But I think we've been stung and because of the period of time that it had been, it was like no one 
no one wanted to really talk about it, didn't it? It was like you just had to whisper it under your breath. You know, even when Liverpool were 18 points, 21 points clear, the Man United game felt big, didn't it? I think that was the first time that Anfield actually, like, everyone broke rank and thought, sod it, we're singing it. But it, Villa away, James. Villa, I mean, Villa away was a big one. But it, was that one you know I feel quite strongly about this game. I know you love that one. But when you look back now, it was like Liverpool were just, they blew everyone away on such a crazy level. You know, it was, I remember being at Watford when the the unbeaten run ended, and I thought, was that, Liverpool, Liverpool was like twenty three points clear or something at the time, wasn't it? It was like Liverpool was so poor that day, having hit crazy levels of consistency prior to that. The only sadness when you look back now that season was the way it ended because of the pandemic. That still rankles with me. The fact that Klopp and that team and all the fans didn't get the opportunity to properly celebrate that that achievement. That was the asterisk year, wasn't it? When everyone wanted the uh, wanted the entire league thrown out, even though it's won it by the time the pandemic hit, really. And I once said to you, and I said, there should be an asterisk. And I saw his face drop. I said, and it should say, everyone else was absolute crap. And if the pandemic wouldn't have hit, Liverpool would have won by even more points. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, that was, I mean, truly remarkable. Just going to rewind a little bit uh, because, you know, we're talking about the, the, the relationships. One of the things that, James was, you know, the the fact is, Michael Edwards became this huge figure in the club. I think people forget a little bit that, you know, this was the guy, you know, who signed Markovic and Emre Sian and was like, oh, you know, these two are going to be transformative. Yeah, right. And then, and then all of a sudden, the signings seemed to, you know, with him, Mike Gordon, Klopp, the signings seemed to click, you know, Salah, who, to be fair, Edwards wanted as far back as January 2014 when he went to Chelsea. But suddenly, the recruitment thing seemed to be just producing hit after hit. I think it becomes a lot easier for Michael Edwards when you've got a manager who has such a clear idea of what he wants to do. Liverpool, I mean, at the first season, Liverpool changed the formation a little bit in the, some games. I think Klopp, maybe one or two games. I remember Stoke away, I think he tried three at the back for half the game and it didn't quite work out. But by and large, you know, it's 4 3 3. Expectations on the fullbacks in a certain way, expectations on the midfielders in a certain way. Very, very clear what Klopp wanted. So I think if you're a sporting director working where there's a very clear strategy, it becomes easier to recruit because you know what you're recruiting for. Whereas, when Michael Edwards was working under previous managers, Brendan Rodgers sort of flip-flopped between what he was trying to do. I think in that season when Liverpool nearly won it in 2013-14, it helped Liverpool at certain points because I actually think you could say that, that Rodgers' tax- tactical flexibility in some games actually helped them win the game. But then I think he went too far away from becoming a possession team to a counter-attacking team and it just became very confused, basically, which makes it harder for the sporting director to do his job because you're signing players for, for different strategies. So I think the pair of them brought the best out of each other. You know, I was I was quite critical of Michael Edwards when, you know, in that period, you know, a lot, a lot of people say, oh, I see you were wrong. It's like, well, no, he, he was right to be criticised as well in that period because ultimately no one was leading anybody. It, the club was a little bit without leadership. Maybe that should come from the manager. Maybe it should come from the owners. Maybe it should be forced by the sporting director. But I still think that ultimately the signings that you mentioned, Markovic particularly, didn't go elsewhere and do very well, did he? Emre Chan, he um, went for a free transfer. I never thought he was quite quick enough for what, certainly for what Jurgen Klopp wanted in his midfield. But the, the sort of the the other signings, you know, Andy Robertson, 
I mean, I very much doubt Jurgen Klopp wanted to sign him straight away. He wouldn't have known a huge well, amount. He, of... he didn't play him, did he, until the, the yeah, like uh, December? It does get forgotten. You know, so I, I think it's a combination of the two rubbing off each other very well. But, you know, over a period, of, long period, relatively long period of time in football terms, you know, I think where you've got two quite forceful personalities, that, that relationship does fray. Quite clearly, Michael Edwards decided it was time to get out. And, you know, Liverpool haven't quite been the same, had the same success rate since, really, I would say, both in the sales department and in the purchase department. And things on the pitch haven't been quite clicked as well. But then there is that caveat that, you know, the team at that point does need rebuilding. So arguably, it was probably going to be a little bit like this anyway, when unless you're Man City and you can just say, see it to a load of players and then... Well, as they have done in the in the decent in the sort of the sort of the middle past, if you like, sort of going back to 2016-17. Liverpool have never been able to do that. They've had to trade and do it bit by bit by bit. I think I think the sort of the Edwards Klopp axis cup thrown in with Mike, Mike Gordon was key really to what everything that happened at Liverpool. But ultimately you do need the man you need that manager for everybody to believe. Because then you've got the crowd as well. I mean, as good as Michael Edwards, as good as Mike Gordon might be at their sort of roles. You're never going to hear a, a stadium chanting for the sporting director or for the owners. It's it's about the manager and the players. So, and the manager leads the players ultimately. So he's he's the one who who picks the team. And it is ultimately, you know, you'd, I think to be a Liverpool manager, you do have at the, at that time anyway. They needed somebody like Jurgen Klopp's fit force of personality to to heave them forward. Yeah, before we go on, I'd just like to apologise to listeners for, for what they might have heard. It was an accident, really. The mic picked up Simon saying something mildly positive about Brendan Rodgers. I assure you, it will never <laughs> happen again on this show. <laughs> so now we're into the next phase. We're in a proper rebuild. And James, this is a really big test of a manager you know, who's been there eight years, as we've said, We've seen them ride the emotional roller coaster, you know, particularly going for four trophies and then all of a sudden having a terrible year with the midfield. You know, there were questions about him last year. Was he too loyal to the squad? And, you know, he, he was down last year. There were points last year, where you last season, where you wondered whether he'd still be here come, I don't know, the autumn. Are we into a second glorious phase now? I think it's probably a bit too soon to to say whether we are or not. I think the signs are massively promising. I think I think you're right that funny enough when I was writing a piece to mark his 8-year anniversary last weekend it it's only when you kind of look back that you kind of refresh your memory of just how bleak things were back in probably you know January to March really. I remember being at a press conference when you know a bit of gallows humor crept in and Klopp was talking about you know the elephant in the room is you know, you're all probably thinking, well, why am I still here? I think it had been the week when Brendan Rodgers had, had been sacked. I think Graham Potter had been sacked as well. And of course, it, it never reached a point where that was a serious conversation, either for the owners or for... But it seemed to, it seemed to be going through his mind, though. You know, I think he was the only one who thought it might happen. I, I, at the time, and you know, being there, the, the games and the press conferences, I, I just sensed that he was a bit forlorn in terms of like, the problems kept on stacking up and and he couldn't find the answers. And I, I got kind of a bit of a backlash off him away at Wolves in what was that February time. That for me was probably the worst moment because Liverpool was so bad that day. 
And I remember like in the build up to the game, he'd been quite defiant and had talked about how, you know, a full week on the pre- training field, you know, you're going to see the response and, and Liverpool could have been 4-0 down after about 12 minutes. It was that bad. So, you know, yeah, as, as much as I think everyone knew, well, hang on a minute, summer 2023 is going to be huge because it was clear the squad was in need of some major surgery. I think anyone would be lying if they didn't have worries about the inability to find answers quicker in that those dark days of winter and spring. Um, but yeah, that, that was by far and away the biggest challenge and crisis that Klopp had faced in his eight years at Liverpool. Because I think it was more understandable in 2020-21 because, of course, you had an unprecedented situation where every senior centre-back suffered a season-ending injury and it was just a soulless, joyless experience pandemic football. But yeah, last season, I think it was more a case of, not just Klopp, I think people higher up, at, you know, in terms of the, the, the hierarchy of the club as well, just massively overestimated what that group of players had left in the tank. But I think, you know, I remember, I remember listening to Klopp saying, I think it was about March, April time, but he said, I knew there would be some teething issues because this squad needed rebuilding. And when I signed that new contract in April 2022 to stay till 2026, it was because I was committing to overseeing that rebuild where he said, you know, if I'd walked away at the end of the cycle with those teething troubles, inevitably whoever had taken over, you know, there'd have been calls for, for bring back Klopp. So yeah, I think it was a hell of a challenge because it was hard enough doing it the first time around, wasn't it? Trying to Trying to compete with nation states and the unlimited pots of cash it was hard enough finding an Andy Robertson and you know a Jeannie Wijnaldum the first time round and but it's that challenge of trying to do it again that that has kept him coming back for more Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You're listening to Walk On, brought to you by The Athletic. So, I mean, he signed a contract, Simon, until 2026. So we've got essentially a couple of years to go. That's enough time to see the rebuild through, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I I think they're heading in the right direction at the moment. Uh, There might be a bit more distance to go than people might think. Well, I think the game against Brighton exposed that. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I I said last week or the, the week before that I think there may be one or two players short. It might be a few more potentially over the next few years in the sense that I think that the short now, I, I don't think they've got enough to win. You know, to, when I say challenge for the league, you know, sort of Liverpool's challenge for the league, I, I, I almost feel it like describing what happened in 
2022 and 2019 as, as, as a challenge, as underplaying what they did because it, it wasn't even a challenge. It was like, you know, neck and neck, wasn't it? You know, all the way through. It wasn't like they were sort of half having a go and getting within five points or six points as they had done in the past in some seasons. They were really, really close to winning it. I do think there are some players that, you know, popular players, good players who serve Liverpool really, really. I mean, they've all served Liverpool well if they played for Klopp for this at the time. We'll sadly have to move on and some difficult decisions, well, more difficult decisions will have to to take place to get them to the point where uh, they want to be. It could end up being that last season, you know, where they really have a go at it again. It might. I think people are hoping this season, you know, other people are thinking, well, it could be next season. I actually think it could be maybe the, you know, the, the season after that when they really get to a point where they'll be, you know, fully equipped to go for it. The only thing that does concern me, which is a big thing, is is you know we, we speak about sort of the twenty fifteen to eighteen period, uh, and there being some parallels with that, with the way you know there's parts of games when they look really good, other parts of games where they look all over the place. I mean that was the case in that period as well. But the, the difference being, of course, that off the pitch there are people we just mentioned who are no longer there, and we're still not really sure who are going to be their replacements. You know, senior high level executives. And they have a role to play here. I, th- I think that Jürgen Klopp over the years, understandably, given the, his achievements, has gained more and more power at the club. I can see what is good about that. I can also see the negatives of that. You know, to say it's exactly the same as that period, I, d- I don't think is 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 right. Because as I say, the, the sort of the parts that were there before, which helped Jürgen Klopp and helped the team become what it became, are no longer there. So... They have that to solve as well. Obviously, the signs that they made in the summer, Zobersly, you know, I think we can all say I'd be majorly surprised if he didn't prove to be, you know, a, a very big star at Liverpool over a long period of time. McAllister, I feel a bit sorry for at the moment because that's just not his position. I hope it doesn't sort of affect him too much, you know, when eventually they, they sort of find the space for him elsewhere in the midfield. But I, I think in defence... I just think at the moment, given that the lack of the number six is exposing the defence, I think the defence doesn't quite have the pace that it once had, particularly when Canate doesn't play. And I do question as well how many years Andy Robertson can just run up and down that wing. You know, it's been intense for him. I'd be interested to see how many miles he's done compared to all the other players in that period of time. It must be a lot. I know when I wrote an article last year about like sort of some of the problems sort of off the pitch which is tying into what I'm talking about, you know, the medical staff, a big change over his staff, huge number of staff have gone. I don't think that's a good thing for, for any football club to have the turnover that Liverpool have had. But Andy Robertson at the time, you know, was playing in the red zone a lot. You know, it's, it's going to have a, t- a toll on the player. So I do think that gradually they need to start thinking about this. And um, as painful as it may be to lose some of the players, you know, the, they've already lost some. That I think there's going to have to be more to get Liverpool back to where they were. I think that some of those tough decisions are going to have to be taken. Hi everyone, Raphael Lonekstein here and I'm talking about Jurgen Klopp and his chances, or Germany's chances rather, of getting him as the successor to Julian Nagelsmann in the summer after the Euros. Now the first thing that has to be said is that both Nagelsmann and the German FA have left things open uh, as much as continuing beyond the Euros is concerned. So the job might not actually be available. It is, of course, Hans-Joachim Watzke's dream to get Jürgen Klopp in. They both work together at Dortmund very successfully. Uh, there's a deep bond 
and uh, Watzke would love nothing else, would love nothing more than getting Klopp to either come back to Dortmund, but that's unrealistic, or more possibly trying to get him as the Germany manager. But it is unclear whether Klopp's agenda aligns. Uh, the timing seems a little bit off, in my view. I think Klopp will stay at least another season beyond this one. And there is also the consideration that the job might not be available if Julian Nagelsmann is having a, a decent run-up to the Euros and then a good tournament itself. He might just decide to stay, by which point Klopp will be well into preparations for the next season. So I think Germany fans, my hunches, will have to wait a little bit longer. James, I mean, is it too early to be succession planning? Yeah, I think it is. I think... Things change too fast in football, I think, to be able to like have a, a proper plan in place. I mean, it wasn't wasn't that long ago, was it, when Steven Gerrard was winning the league in Scotland and we were saying, well, you know, he's putting himself in in line to potentially be the next one. And and also the fact that you also there's a lot of moving parts in terms of when does Klopp actually go because prior to him signing that deal in April twenty twenty two, you speak to anyone at Liverpool and connected with FSG at the time and they were like what well, he's he's going to have a sabbatical that was he was quite adamant that was the case and then it, as he explained to everyone you know his wife Ula was was instrumental in basically saying look come on we're, we're not leaving in 2024 are we you know this this isn't done so yeah i think it's too early i mean now people are now talking about Zabi Alonso aren't they with the the fantastic job that that he's doing and it's like someone said to me that they you know, do you think Alonso's now the next in line and it's like well you know, we don't know where Xabi Alonso is going to be in 12 months or 18 months or two years time in terms of, you know, it, there's no guarantees that his his kind of progress in management is just going to be an upward curve. And where does that take him? Obviously, Steven Gerrard's now managing in Saudi Arabia. You know, Pep Linders is another one who I think his name has always been part of the conversation for, you know, because he is essentially already responsible for the entire training regime at Liverpool you know, has has an awful lot of influence and also is a massively popular figure, you know, in the dressing room, but also amongst the ownership group as well. And, you know, so highly regarded by Mike Gordon. But yeah, I I, I just think, yeah, it's it's far too soon because what, what I think, I think what we don't know is, you know, what, when will Jurgen Klopp call it a day? I, I think he'll be desperate to go out on a high. And if, I don't know, say in 2025, there is a glorious high to potentially go out on. You know, maybe that might be part of his thinking that that would be better than staying for the last 12 months of his deal. I can't see him any anything happening before 2025 at the earliest. I'd also be surprised if he'd signed another contract to go beyond 2026. But no, I, I, I yeah, I think it's it's too early to be talking like that. I think one, one positive there is, is there does seem to be a bit more clarity now Compared to, you know, during some of the chaos of last season, you also had, you know, in the background, you had the fact that, you know, we, we knew that the sporting director was leaving. We knew that the owners were potentially looking to sell up. Now, now the position of the owners is they're, they're going absolutely nowhere. Now they've sold a small minority stake in the club. So I think there's greater clarity on that front. And what we're waiting to see now is, you know, it's going to be intriguing what they do with the sporting director, because, you know, you only had to listen to some of those quotes from Jörg Schmadke, who clearly was only you know an interim appointment, call it, describing himself as like Klopp's assistant, 
and a facilitator to you know for to carry out Klopp's wishes essentially. And it, you know that and that's that's not the usual dynamic between manager and sporting director. So it's going to be interesting to see you know who they go for in terms of a longer term replacement and whether whether that dynamic shifts or not. Is that a sign, Simon, of uh, too much power being centred on Klopp? I mean, one of the worries is we saw a Man United and Arsenal when Ferguson and Wenger left, you know, two huge figures who had had too much power centralised on them, you know, and it all went... It all went to hell in a handcart afterwards. Um, yeah. You know, are, are we in that territory? Are we risking that? Well, I go back to the first question that you asked, you know, about the statue. You know, I, I think that managers, they're not just defined by sort of what they achieve at the club, but the, the sort of the, the practice that they leave behind as well. So I think it's only with time that you, you can sort of reflect upon the true scale of what Klopp has done. I mean, it is undeniably he has brought success beyond most people's wildest dreams. He is, at the time he's been there, brought in a certain culture at the club. You, what you want, you know, the most successful clubs, have, as Liverpool have sort of, Liverpool's history shows, yeah. I mean, it, it's not to say that what it was like under Shankly was exactly the same under Paisley, but those certain core values remained at the club for a long period of time. Now, my concern is when you give a manager a lot of the power, if not all the power, as was the case at Arsenal at Man United, when that manager is no longer there, suddenly there's a vacuum, really, and it's very difficult to put things, you know, to, to succeed that manager. It becomes very difficult for the, the next manager in place. So my concern is, is that, obviously, you know, we've spoken about Edwards and Gordon being... I would say they were crucial to the development of Liverpool in that period. There's no doubt. I mean, Jurgen Klopp needed, you know, somebody on the board who he could speak to on a regular basis and his relationship with Gordon was very close. And, you know, we've already discussed what it was like between Edwards. Obviously, the sort of the, the mechanics that, that made that structure ready for success and the people who were there are no longer there. And, uh, you know, the quote that James just read out there is sort of reflective of the way things are working at the moment. So it sort of means that, you know, that it's it's not the way it has been in the past. And there is a danger that if Klopp has too much of the power and too much of the say, saying that the, the sort of the, the system that had made them successful might no longer be there. You know, it's been dismantled really a little bit. So... They need to be really careful, Liverpool, about how how much power they give him. I think when he really wants something, you know, whether they they should try and facilitate that. It's just I, I look at signings like Endo. It's the sort of signing that I, I would have been surprised to see the make under Michael Edwards. He might point to I think Klopp's trying to say it's like Ranyar Clavan, isn't it? You know that sort of signing, but four year contract on a thirty year old player who hasn't played in the Premier League before. It just seems like a bit of a departure from what, you know, the practice that had made them successful. I know they've had to react to the market to some extent, but anyway, I, I, I just think that there is a danger. I just think any wholesome sort of relationship at any football club that leads to success involves people above and around the manager challenging constantly. And the day that stops, you know, I, I don't think it's good for any football club. I'm not saying that that's happened at Liverpool, but... I think increasingly if, if the people who have challenged him are leaving, it, it automatically would lead to questions of whether the people coming in are going to do the same thing. 
yes, there are questions hanging over the future because there's got to be because we don't know what's going to happen, do we? You know, we're you know we're not psychics or soothsayers, but like, we can't end on a negative point like that, James. All the signs this season have been pretty good. Yes, the Brighton game was a little bit of a reality check, but not that much, you know. I mean, they should have put that game away. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a hell of a lot to be optimistic about going into this international break because, you know, Liverpool have had a really, really challenging start to the season. When you think, what we eight games in, you know, they've already gone away to what Chelsea, Newcastle, Tottenham and Brighton for the most difficult away trips. Five out of the eight have been away from home as well. They've had four red cards in eight games. Um, they were robbed of a perfectly good goal from Luis Diaz at, at, at Tottenham. You know, last weekend, ridiculous decision not to send off Pascal Gross after he tried to swap shirts with Zabozlai. And he, and But Liverpool, despite all that, Liverpool are three points off the top of the Premier League, 100% record in Europe, still in the Carabao Cup. And this is after a summer of massive change. You know, when you think of some of the big personalities and the levels of experience they lost. I read some quite kind of negative comments off the back of the Brighton game. And I think some of them missed the fact that Brighton are a very, very good team. And that is not a bad result coming away with it. And of course, there were lots of holes you could pick in their performance. And it, they were strangely flat, I thought, Liverpool for big parts of it. But we've seen already this season, the, the resilience has come to the fore in terms of digging themselves out of some holes They've got firepower on a level that no other team can get close to. When you think of, I think Klopp called them last week his fantastic five. The, you know, the the, the caliber of those five attackers he's got. Um, yes, he's got some thinking to do in terms of that number six role. And as Simon said, you know, I agree. I don't think it's working playing McAllister there. He needs to be freed up to play further forward. And I think that probably does mean he has to put more faith in Endo, having decided he was the right person to bring in. I think you've now got to back him, um, at least until you've got more options there with Thiago and Besetic coming back from injury. But yeah, I think there's a there's a hell of a lot to be to be buoyant about in terms of this season. And Liverpool aren't perfect. Yeah, I think they're, we're still in that transitional phase from one team to another. And, you know, next summer, the back line will definitely need strengthening. You know, having, you know, probably... The front line was the first thing to be addressed, wasn't it? Then it was the midfield this summer. But I think also there, there isn't an outstanding team in the Premier League this season. I think the margin for error is going to be greater. You're not going to have a situation where you need 95 points to, to win a Premier League title. So, yeah, from what I've seen so far, I think I think Klopp is well and truly on course to guide Liverpool back into the Champions League. And, you know, and if they get some good fortune with injuries and if he manages to to make them a bit more solid in defensively, then there's no reason why they can't mount a title challenge. And just one last thing. What do we think if they do build a statue to them eventually? What what should be the pose? I mean, I think it should be in pointing and snarling so that, you know, a, a father will bring his child in and they'll say, Dad, what's Klopp doing there? Well, he's either having a go with VAR officials or singling out James Pierce. <laughs> Let's face it, he is one of the most significant figures in the club's history, and as James, you said earlier on, the most transformative since Shankly. And I'll tell you what, as someone who's seen every manager since Shankly, and um, I'm plenty of Shankly as well, I've got to say, kids, you're all lucky 
to have Jürgen Klopp. So that's it from this week's Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. And thanks to James and Si. And to you for joining us. And next week, we won't be talking about England. We won't be mentioning the international break because, as you know, we all hate it over here at Walk On. But we will be talking about the Derby. And you've got to be excited about that. Tune in. Have a listen next week. The Athletic.